You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It's in the Old Testament. You go about halfway through your Bible. It's the book of Psalms. Um, and keep heading to the right. You'll hit Proverbs. And then finally, Ecclesiastes. Um, we are in chapter 8 this morning. And remind us what we're doing. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is ultimately, ultimately about our condition as people. Uh, the condition in which we take very good things, things that God has made, uh, things that He has made for us and, and for His own glory, and we make them ultimate things. In other words, we, we begin to order our lives around them, whether those things be uh, sex or money or power or, or whatever. Uh, what our writer in this book is seeking to do is to follow that practice to its logical conclusions. Can, can these things deliver for me if I put my hopes in them? Right? So this morning we come to one that is very prevalent today. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a 19th century German philosopher, bemoaned the fact that, that as he saw it, when people stopped believing in an ultimate God, um, that they would begin to elevate the state, the government, to that role. And he bemoaned that fact because he thought that this was not as it should happen, since the only logical alternative, frankly, to, to an ultimate God is an ultimate self. And the, the elevation of the state there just simply uh, skipped the, the or, or missed the mark for him. So at the, at the same time as seeing that he bemoaned that, his observation has been eerie in its clairvoyance, right? Not least of which in, here in, in this country. Um, this morning, we look at the fact that the power of the state, or the king in, in the case of this text, is necessary, but ultimately it cannot be ultimate for us. So, as we uh, read Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 15, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. Friends, this is God's word. It is given for us. It is, it is God's revelation of himself. It is not a book that we decided on, picked, said this would be the good one as opposed to others. It lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way this morning. God's word. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. 
All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is meaningless. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is meaningless. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. God's word given so that we might flourish. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're coming into this place with lots of different stuff. Some of us with great stories of, of wonderful weeks, others um, of struggle. But ultimately, Lord, what we're asking this morning is for you to come into this place and to throw your weight around. Because you are the God who redeems and rescues, and we need to hear from you this morning. So, Lord, let your words come to the fore. Um, let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. And, Lord, preach your gospel to us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Currently, we are enjoying a bit of a reprieve in our culture, but it won't last long. The rumblings are beginning. Every day we are lurching closer and closer to a time that many of us dread. Election season. Now granted, midterm elections in the, the, the waning or the, the final term of a sitting president aren't as big a deal as at other times, but we all know what's coming, right? It all follows the same general pattern. It's going to begin with the pigeonholing, caricatures, and a string of uh, quote-unquote heroes to get behind. The next big thing on the, on the political landscape. Then will come the promises and the dreams of what could be, if only. Then after that comes the fear of what will happen if we, however it is you classify the we, lose. We will basically become partakers of a non-stop construal of who we are as a people, what is wrong with the world, and how this particular candidate or party will fix it if they get into power. Right? We will associate apocalyptic images and notions to the idea of losing. And we will readily use the phrase, the most important election in history. It's amazing how everyone is that, you know? And the reality is, it will be intense and we will eat it up. There is something alluring to us about placing our hopes in government, but in the end, as we've seen... In so many elections in which we have won, it can't hold those hopes. That's what we're looking at this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin. If that's helpful to you, you can take it out or just leave it. It doesn't matter. Either one. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the rule that we have. We're going to look at the rule that fails. And then finally, we're going to look at the rule that we need. Okay? All right, let's get started. The beginning here, I'd like to use the text as a jumping off point if we can. So look down at verses 1 to 6. We're going to talk about the purposes of government. Okay? Now, if you're reading this, at least in the first part, what it sounds like um, 
And it's hard to parse that out for many of us because it's, it's so different from the way we normally speak. But what it sounds like is advice that's being given from someone who knows something of the practice to someone who is either on or in the king's court. In other words, uh, another way of putting it for us would be like his cabinet. Like someone who is in the, the king's inner circle um, or some kind of advisor. All right? And right off the bat, we have to deal with something. We, as Americans, we have a cultural allergy to the idea of monarchy. Okay, we, we go to anaphylaxis when we start thinking of it. The reality is Brits think that we have more of a monarch than they do, but uh, the same thing is true. Like the, the reality is true. We, we have an allergy to it, so we have to bring this into our context. Okay? When, when verse 2 says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, we need to understand a couple ways that we can take this that hopefully will overcome this little allergic reaction for us. There are a couple ways to take this. I don't think we have to make a decision because it doesn't ultimately affect the interpretation much, but I'll, I'll lay out both. Right? First and foremost, when he says, obey the king's command because of God's oath to him, he could be talking about a specific oath. Okay? If you were to flip to the left in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, there, King David um, is, who, who is you know, the mighty king, David and Goliath, stones, slingshot, all that stuff. David, is um, he wants to build a temple for God, right? God is, God, the worship of God up to this point, from the point in which God's people left their, their, their um, slavery in Egypt to the point of David, which is, which is a, a, very, a long time, okay? God's worship had been done in a tent, a very ornate tent, very nice tent, but a tent all the same. And he wants to build a temple for him, a place where God, God is basically staking his claim back on the land permanently, Okay? But God does, says, no, not you, David. It's not going to be to you. And instead tells him, you know, David wants to build a house for God. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand, David. I'm going to build a house for you. Okay? 2 Samuel 7. He promises that David's royal line will never end. Okay? That he will have a king that will sit on the throne or will rule forever. All right? This is, in, in theological terms, we call this the covenant with David. It's part of the overarching covenant of grace. But it's, it's the covenant of David. And the New Testament makes it clear that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus, who is both the descendant of David and the king that's going to rule forever. Okay? Now, the second way you could take this is from the perspective, a little more general. And it's the fact that no government exists apart, uh, apart from the, the ordination of God. Okay? Now, some of us have a really hard time with that. Uh, I hope to speak to that in a second. But, but Romans chapter 13, it's one of the books of the New Testament, makes the point, as does uh, the book of Proverbs, which is just a little bit to your left here where we are, in Proverbs 21 verse 1, and, and countless other places in the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah say, that God is said to be moving the kingdoms uh, in, in, the, in the prophets. He's said to be moving the kingdom of Babylon or Assyria to be his agents of judgment. Okay? In Romans 13, Paul literally says, no authority is established on earth if, that God is not established. There is no authority except what God has established. Jesus tells Pontius Pilate, okay? Pontius Pilate's the Roman governor who crucified Jesus. Pontius Pilate brings him before him and he says, he, he's trying to get him to defend himself because Pilate doesn't want to crucify him, mainly because he wants to stick it to the Jews, not because he thinks anything good of Jesus. Okay. Pilate was a coward who didn't like the Jews. So he's trying to stick it to the Jews. And, and Pilate says, why aren't you talking to me? Do you not understand I have the authority either to crucify you or set you free? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Brother, you don't get it. You wouldn't have any authority unless it were given to you from above. Okay? 
God establishes government, but why? The question is probably floating around for some of us is, is this, like if God establishes all authority, does that give justification to kind of like evil governments, right? Evil regimes, or perhaps we just think all government is evil and that falls into that. It's a great question. The short answer is no, okay? And we have to remember this, that when Jesus said what he said to Pilate, you don't have any authority but what God gave you. Dude's about to kill him. And he knows this. Like, he is about to go to the cross and die. Uh, when Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, wrote that, that, that there, no authority has been established, it hasn't been established by God, this is a guy who's existing under a tyrannical form of government. It's not exactly friendly to Christianity. And in about 10 years from the point at which he wrote that, that, those very words, is going to put him to death. So in other words, this is not the power brokers speaking to the weak, telling them, stay in line, God ordained our rule. Okay? This is the weak, in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, saying that God has established these things. But that still doesn't get us to the why question. Basically, it's this. Okay? The purpose of government, ultimately, according to the scriptures, has two, two functions. One is negative and one is positive. Negatively, it, its purpose is to restrain sin, to restrain evil. Positively, it is to, prom- it is to promote and to provide um, structures for human flourishing. Now, before I move on, I want, to notice, I want you to notice something. I said that the purpose negatively was to restrain sin, not to eliminate it. Okay? And its purpose was to provide structures for human flourishing, not to create human flourishing. It's too big a bill for government to fill. Okay? It's an important distinction, but frankly, it's one that only makes sense if we understand the story of the Bible. So let me try and summarize that story. Humanity was created by God at the, at the, on the uh, you know, book of Genesis on the sixth day, which means like at the pinnacle of everything. It's created to, to um, flourish under God's loving rule. Okay? We, were, we were created to reign under him, over creation, to flourish under his loving rule. But we began to believe that though he created us, though he designed us, that he didn't really know what was best for us. Or if he did, he didn't really care what was best for us. He cared what was good for him. And so we betrayed him, which made us rebels. What I mean by that is that we are guilty of that rebellion before him, but also that we are rebels now by by nature, it's become part of our nature. We are born rebels. And this is what the Bible calls sin, okay? It isn't just actions. Sin isn't just something we do. It's something we are. It's who we are. It's a state where God's ideas on how we would flourish are rejected for ours. Very much like if your car were to go and to talk to its engineer and say, you know what, I think I should run on water instead of gas. It's about the same. We're looking at our creator saying, you know what, I think I know what's good for me, not you. We were designed to be in a dependent relationship with God and in an unbroken relationship with each other, which meant seeking the flourishing of others. But when we betrayed God, we began uh, independently seeking our own flourishing at the cost of others, which is what the Bible calls evil. Let me say that again. What the Bible calls evil is seeking your own flourishing at others' cost. Okay, And so government is meant ideally to restrain that evil so the only means it has, which is coercion, okay, power, the threat of force of some form, and to provide structures for others to flourish, which reflect God's design for us. You with me? 
Okay? Now, in these first six verses, that is assumed. But what is spoken of is the reality that the king, who in this form is at the center of the government, basically does what he wants, and if you challenge him, may use that power against you. So, so the mindset that's, being, that's coming across is be careful what you, what you challenge because you could become a target of the power that has been given to this, this ruler. Okay? And that leads us to the nature of what that power is. Look down at verses 7 to 9. Some of you will know that a pretty consistent refrain throughout this book, if you've been here any amount of time, knows you know that our, our, the, the writer who calls himself the preacher or the teacher, uh, whatever, he keeps coming back to this theme of death. Like death is this like lingering shadow off in the distance, that seems to make everything uh, meaningless, make everything absurd. And the same happens here. In verse 8, he says that no man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Now, that's, that should be like, duh, right? Uh, but only until we remember more of our story. Because you see, the Bible, when, when it ta- the Bible talks about death. Very honest, like, obviously death happens, but it's not natural. It is part of, and in fact can stand in for, uh, in place of, the consequences are our betrayal. What I mean is that, is that um, death, and by that, the Bible means both physical death and having to bear the weight of our betrayal. Like, in other words, bearing God's judgment, what the Bible calls hell. Both of those can be subsumed under the idea of death. That death came into the world because we betrayed God. And thus, death becomes the symbol for everything that is wrong in the world. And so basically, what the writer is saying in the first part of verse 8 is that government can't deal with what is most wrong with the world. It can't solve our problem. That problem is lingering out there in the distance. We know it's there, and it can't solve it. And so when the end of the verse says that wickedness will not deliver those given to it, that language is the language of slavery, like wickedness being a slave owner. And he won't give up those that have been given to him. He will not set free those who are his. Now, here's why this matters to us. What is it that we hope government's going to do? Lord willing. Uh, But what is it that we hope government will do? At the end of the day, we want it to take away what is wrong with the world for us. Ultimately, we want it to make sinners not sinners anymore. Now, of course, the other thing that we want the government to do, let's be honest, okay? Let's just be real frank. What we want the government to do is to make us feel right. We want it to make us feel justified by having our personal views codified into law. Because because somehow we have come to believe that if a majority of people agree with us, that that makes it true and makes us feel right. Okay? But the problem is that government can't take away sin and it can't make us right. And the writer is telling us that the very things that we want government to do, that we want the ruler to do, he or she cannot do. He can't do. This leads into verse 9 when he says that man had power over man to his hurt. It's pointing out that what government does have to do, what government does have the power to do, to use force to coerce, actually is hurting. Now, who is it hurting? Man having power over man to his hurt. It's ambiguous. It's purposely ambiguous. Probably means both. Already, he's telling us it's not able to do what we hope. Okay? 
And that leads us directly to see the failures of this rule first by seeing its limits. Look down at verses 10 to 13. Let me point out real quick before we move on that when, when our passage talks about the fact, like when this section talks about the fact that, that you see failures of a system, that those failures, do, the system's failures do not somehow absolve, um, absolve the individuals within it. Okay, look there in verse 10. He says that he has seen the wicked buried. In other words, there are still wicked here. Yes, the system is broken. The system doesn't work, but it doesn't somehow absolve everyone. That somehow that everyone's individual responsibility is then cast out because the system's messed up. No, system's messed up, and there are still the wicked. Okay, but remember that the term wicked in the Bible means those who are seeking their flourishing at the cost of others, which is why in the scriptures both criminals can be seen as the wicked, as well as those who appear upstanding but are oppressing the poor. Both are seeking to get their own flourishing at the cost of others, and the scripture says both are wicked. Okay? They are both disadvantaging others to advantage themselves. Verses 10 to 13 point out a couple of problems. The first is that wickedness is often praised by others, and the second is that if judgment isn't swift, and as many of us know, judgment rarely is swift, uh, the heart seems to plunge itself into evil. Both of these point to the problem of limits. Government at its best, at its best, can try and hold sin back, but it can't change the heart of the one doing it. In other words, the government can never make the wicked just. Can never make the wicked just. They may, they may not give a declaration towards the wicked. They may um, even, even let the wicked off, but they can never make the wicked just. It can't transform those who are doing wrong into those who do right. At best, it can only keep those doing wrong from doing too much wrong. That's on its best day. Now, this should, at some level, elicit the question of why not then seek to pursue your own advantage at the disadvantage of others, right? Why not? He speaks to that in verses 12 to 13, where he basically says, yeah, yeah. But it does seem to go better for those who fear God. Okay, now, this is, as, as you know, if you've been here, you know that our writer is not writing from a religious perspective. He is trying his best to seek out a way in which to put, place his hopes in something other than an ultimate God. And so when he's saying this, isn't a, this doesn't bring with it a ton of religious import, it's a statement of observation. In general, things seem to go a little bit better for those who aren't pursuing to advantage themselves in, in general. But there's still a problem. Look down at verses 14 to 15. Because he comes back to the problem of injustice. He literally just said, you know, in general, things are going to go better for you if, if you're doing this. But then he says, but let, let me get to the particular. The righteous get what the wicked should get, and the wicked seem to prosper. And so in the end, he, he's in the same place he's been over and over and over again. It's all meaningless. The system can't seem to make things right. For all its promise, political power cannot change hearts and it cannot eliminate injustice. It cannot make the world right. It cannot, uh, it, it cannot make things right for us. If people are broken, we have to know that they don't cease to be broken when they begin to work together in a system, right? 
It's not as if you get a bunch of broken people together and the, and the arithmetic works like this. It's like one broken person plus two other broken people equals, hey, it's all good now. Isn't this great? Look how we all pooled our brokenness and came up with brokenness. Like that, That's the way this works. Broken people create broken systems. It can't make the world right because it can never address what made the world wrong. It can never change it. Look, the Bible is honest about the fact that the world, and when I say the world, I don't just mean out there. I mean in here. I mean in here, even. The world is jacked. Like, it is, it is messed up. As a matter of fact, that's like the major theme of the Bible, that the world is not right. But it says, however, the major problem is not moral or behavioral. If the major problem with the world was moral or behavioral, then government would do just fine. Because government, government could coerce us to change our morality, to change our behaviors, to change doing what we're doing. Coercion would work. Reform would work. But, that, but it isn't. Our problem began with us betraying God and turning away from Him to our independence. And so it can't be solved with good laws or good policies that never address nor could address our alienation from God. We are stuck in our rebellion against God. And government, even at its best, friends, cannot reconcile you to God. So that brings us to the rule we need. Listen to me, friends. Political ideology is a false savior. It is a false savior. Government programs are false saviors. Listen to me, because we all struggle here, especially in this country. This isn't limited to like one party or another. You can be hoping in government, either on the left, by trusting that the government is going to be able to to uh, fix all of your problems, to save you, or you can be hoping in government on the right by thinking that if we can just get rid of government, it'll save us. Like, we'll be right. Either way. Now, don't zone out on me when I say save. What I mean is to make the world right for us. In whatever situation you find yourself in, and if I could just get rid of those jokers in Washington, or if those jokers in Washington could just get their act together and make things right for me. Either way, it is, it is trying to, to see government save you. Both political conservatives and progressive have their utopias in which everything would just be dandy if they could just get into power. But friends, we need something better. None of these can deliver. You and I need a better king. We need a much better king. And that is where Jesus comes into play. Because what legislation could not do, which is reconcile us to God, that is the very thing that Jesus came to do. Okay, remember what I said. We don't need reform. Now, look, our culture loves to say that Jesus was just a really good teacher. He's a really good dude. Really good dude. Said a lot of good things. Said some good stuff. I like what he said about X, Y, and Z. Not sure about these other things, but I like what he said. Listen, that position, frankly, is silliness. Uh, What Jesus claimed about himself was that in him... In Him. God was coming to reconcile the world. Dude shows up today and says, I'm God and I'm here to reconcile the world. We don't say, you're a good teacher. We throw the dude in the loony bin. We hop him up on so many drugs he can't even get out of bed anymore. Like That is what we do. Jesus claimed that he was, he was coming to reconcile the world to himself. And all of his teachings about God's kingdom only work within that framework. If he was lying about that, why would you believe him about anything else? 
Anything else, all the rest of his teaching did was get him nailed to a tree. Didn't make the world better around him. Everyone left him. He died alone. If he wasn't, true, if he wasn't honest and true about what he claimed about himself... Why believe anything he had to say? You have to take a position. Either Jesus was who he said he was, or he is crazy. But you cannot take the middle position of saying he said some good things. But look, what, what marks Christianity off from other religions, from, really from all other ways of dealing with life, it, it, is that Christianity doesn't offer you rules to reform yourself so that God will like you, right? It's not offering you, uh, you know, seven pillars or, or a, a, a 12-fold path, or, or a bunch of uh, rules to keep, dietary laws, and all this stuff. It doesn't offer you that. Christianity offers you... Look, to do that is basically to offer you an individualized form of government. Follow this legislation and everything will be good for you. Now, you personally, other people, who knows? But you personally, if you follow this, these rules, that's just another form of government. It's just individualized. Christianity doesn't offer you that. It offers you the perfect finished work of Jesus on your behalf. That is what it offers you. Jesus didn't die because he didn't have anything better to do on a Friday evening. He went to the cross to bear the weight of your betrayal before God. He lived and died and rose again so that you could be reconciled to God by placing your faith not in an ideology, not in your ability to reform, but in him. He calls us to leave our rebellion behind and return to Him. And when we do, when we trust in Christ alone by faith, we aren't just pardoned. Pardon would be good. God takes rebels and He makes them heirs to His kingdom. He takes takes insurgents, terrorists, us, and He says, you're now my kid. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. Here are the keys. You're in. He offers us His kingdom out of love. He is, he is the one who is meant to be ultimate to us. And through faith in Christ, He can return there. Okay? Last thing I want to do is talk about a pilgrim kingdom. Does the fact, at the end of the day, does the fact that government can't deliver for us mean that it's bad? No, it does not. It means that it's just not ultimate. The purposes of restraining sin and creating structures for other people to flourish are God-ordained purposes. They are good purposes. Placing Christ as our ultimate, returning to Him by faith, frees us to return government to being good. Look, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, you can be involved in government without feeling the need to protect our, you know, our party or our rightness or our ideology. You can engage in it purely out of a desire for others to flourish according to God's definition, not ours, and not our ideology's definition. Okay? Now, let's be honest here for a minute, because some of us in this room don't think this applies to us. Like, we're passionate about our politics, but we don't think we make it ultimate. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that you um, get upset that laws exist that don't conform to your beliefs? Is it because you want to be right? Or because you want others to flourish? Let me get real for a second. At the end of the day, Christians should not be opposing changes in how the government defines marriage because we are afraid of being culturally marginalized. 
but because we believe that God's vision for human flourishing includes a definition of marriage as between one man and one woman, and thus anything else actually harms those involved, even if they don't see that or believe it. Okay? In other words, we are to to oppose such things not out of self-protection, but out of love for others. Out of love for others. You and I don't need culture's approval. We have God's approval. This is like chump change compared to that. we We don't need cultural influence and power. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It pleases the Father to give you the kingdom. You want cultural power? God gives you the kingdom. Now, some of you who are still stuck on what I just said about opposing a government's change in, in uh, marriage stuff, you're, you're thinking to yourself, Rick, what you're, what you're talking about is imposing your vision of flourishing on others. Yes, I am, and so do you. Okay, look, we have laws that protect against stealing because we believe that this helps everyone flourish. But some don't agree. Some think that they will flourish only if they take from those who have more, right? Look, some of us, there are are folks probably in this room who believe the progressive income tax is thievery. And it is imposed on us. Why? Because we believe that helps people flourish. The reality is, is that everyone has, that that different visions of human flourishing are imposed on folks. Okay? What I'm not talking about is placing our hopes in these things such that we fall into despondency if it doesn't happen. Okay? That is what I'm talking about. It's not whether we should do it, but whether in our attempts to see these things happen, if they don't happen, we, the world is ending. Ugh. The sky is falling. This happens after every election cycle. Okay? Look, listen, if you are going to follow the God of the Bible, then at some point conflict is going to come up in which you name as an idol what others worship as a god. Whether that God is freedom, or equality, or the individual's right to self-determine, or personal property. It will happen. It's going to happen. If it hasn't happened already, you're hoping to avoid it. And the only way you're going to avoid that is by abandoning worship of the true God. Okay? Let me tease out one more implication for, for us here in this room. Though God establishes authorities, God, God's only king, listen to me, God's only king sits on a throne in heaven right now. He is the king. He stands over and above all governments and all political ideologies. He critiques them all. Why? Because they're all broken. Red, blue, green, I don't care. He stands over them all and critiques them. You cannot subsume God into your ideology or your national allegiance. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus, he is your, he is your king. 
And he lays claim on the whole world. Men made these arbitrary boundaries. Our allegiance is transnational. Transnational. I'm about to step on some toes. Forgive me. For the Christian, there can be no God and country. Because there can be no God and anything. That is not to say you cannot love where you live or give due respect to those who have given all so that you can live as you do. It is to say that no nation is to get carte blanche approval by, by God and backing behind what it wants to do simply because it wants to do it or because it will make your life better. That is idolatry. As Francis Schaeffer said, we are at best co-belligerents with our government. Always. Always. As Christians, we are redeemed by our King to seek His kingdom interests and not man's national ones. As people of the King, we are free to speak both to power and to weakness of the King who is coming. Because He is coming. And He is coming to bring His kingdom in its fullness, which is the only kingdom in which we can truly flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are a people who, whose hearts are factories of idols. And one of the places in which we are so ready to establish one is, is with notions of power. And that's all this is. That's all our, our attempts at, at governance are. The power. We want power. Why? Because we want to be protected. We want to be right. But you are the only one that protects us from the, the worst of our enemies' death. And you are the only one that can make us right. You are the only one that makes the wicked just. And there's no one in this room that could claim that they have never sought their own advantage at the cost of others. So Lord, I pray that you would come and apply your gospel again to us. Let us kick down those idols and seek the flourishing of the, the city and the nation that you have called us to as the best possible citizens of this place because our allegiance is somewhere else. Our allegiance is with a king and a kingdom that is here in part but will come in its fullness again, Jesus, when you come and make the world right. We long for that day and look for it in hope. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you'd stand with me, please. You'll find printed in your bulletins our confession of faith. For those of us who believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as our only hope in life, we're reminded this morning from the New City Catechism, reminding us that while we're here, we're to live for God and others, but there is a greater hope that the King will one day return to make all things new, that we will have everlasting life with Him.